Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. It, it really is good to be back. Um, Austin is, is home for me. Austin is, this church has been uh, so much a wonderful part of my family. My, um, three of my four children were, were born living here in Austin and, and started their, their walk with God in, in, in this building. And I absolutely love it. And I'm privileged to be a part of of what uh, Grace is going on through. Like, I don't know about you, but I've been, I've been listening to these sermons that Matt has been doing. I was privileged and honored when he said, when he asked me to be a part and to come speak, and I was a little sort of afraid because these, these last couple of sermons have been overwhelming and powerful in my life. I don't know about you, but, but this I Am series is rocking my world and rocked me to my core. It's so many times, uh, so many times when we come face to face with the brokenness that we have in our life, the the ways in which our life isn't working out, the frustration and, and sin sometimes that bubbles up or the doubt and the worry or just the, the difficulties and complications of life, we kind of go look for answers. Uh, and normally our society, which is prone to novelty, we encourages us to go look for the next thing. You know, we look for the latest gadget or the latest medicine or the latest blog or the latest trick or the latest book. And even in the Bible, sometimes we're looking for the latest study, right? We're trying to find the latest new thing. It is so refreshing to be reminded that the problem is not that we haven't learned some new trick. The problem is that we grow forgetful of the eternal truths. We kind of just walk and drift away. This, ser- this sermon series has been so refreshing to me and encouraging to me because it simply reminds us and reconnects us to the heart of God. This is who God is. Ground yourself in that and everything else takes care of itself. Get that right, and everything else will flow. So many times uh, we forget that the reason why we're, we're so incapable of changing the behaviors that we so, um, so don't like about ourselves or changing our circumstances is because the surest sign of indicator of what we believe is how we act. And so the reason why our character never changes, our behaviors never change, is because our ideas and our beliefs don't change either. You know, we, we try to work out a little bit more and instill, instill good habits to replace bad habits, but ultimately our problem is deep down we believe wrong things about reality. And the better and the more accurate things that we believe, the more carefully and better able to act in conformance with reality we're able to do. If I followed you around for 24 hours or for a week, I could figure out not what you say you believe, but what you really do believe about what ultimate reality is like. You know, we pay lip service. We, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at having grown up in the church. I know the answers I'm supposed to give. But when I'm alone with myself and when I'm, when I'm alone with my thoughts, I know the doubts that I have and the frustrations and the problems and the worries. And I realize that my problem isn't some behavior. It's some truth in my mind and my soul that I need to readjust. I need to be reminded of. I need to ground at the core of who I am. And that's why this, this sermon series has been so powerfully um, regenerative in my life. You know, think about the stuff we've heard so, so far recently. I am trustworthy. You need an anchor for your soul, and that anchor has to go someplace you can't get to and has to be able to hold something, hold on to something that is lasting and permanent. The only anchor that will hold is Jesus Christ. You know, I am loving. God is loving like a father. God loves you, and that is expressed by his passion and desire to make you holy. 
He wants to rid you of the sin which, which is entangling your life and in my life and is, and is breaking us and destroying us and causing death. And he wants to get it out of our life and he's going to make us holy. God loves us. God's love is like a mother's love. He desires to be compassionate and merciful to us. How wonderful to be reminded that, that God's love is something that doesn't seek to break us and to torment us, but it seeks to, it seeks to mold us, seeks to love us, seeks to encourage us and nurture. As I thought about what, um, what contribution I could make to this series, I was reminded of the central truth that I keep struggling with. The, the central thing that I have to continually remind myself over and over again because I forget in those bad habits and those bad lies that the society and, and I believe come creeping back. And that is simply that God is in control. God is in control. The technical term for this is God is sovereign. Sovereign. And it's a great term to know. You should know it. Sovereignty is a wonderful term to know. I avoid using the term for a couple of reasons. One of the main reasons is I'm not sure I can spell it. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of silent letters there, and I'm not good with those things. I, I, I teach primarily dead languages, Greek and Latin, and so I'm allowed to... I can spell correctly in those languages just fine. Uh, English, not so much. And so I, I avoid it for that reason, but also I avoid uh, talking about those term, using the term sovereignty sometimes because it's overly complicated or it sounds highfalutin and theological and inaccessible. And frequently the people who engage in using that term just simply want to argue about theological interesting facts, and they don't actually want to apply the deep truths of God to their life. And so if you, if you Google the word sovereign, if you happen to spell it right, uh, what you will find 99% of the time is unedifying back-and-forth arguments online that have no connection with real life. And so I just sort of um, pass on the term. But the, but the source of the arguments online have to do with, well, if God is in control, how does that relate to my own ability to act in the world? If God has a plan and God is going to carry out that plan, then maybe my works and actions have no effect in this world. And most of the debates and arguments about sovereignty fall into one of those two ditches. Either you overemphasize God's sovereignty and insist almost in a fatalistic, deterministic world where nothing really, none of our choices really are actively choices, but we're already predetermined and you had no control over it. God is in control and you are not over anything. That's one extreme ditch. The other extreme ditch is to say, um, well, no, I feel like I have some modicum of agency. I do and I act in the world and I'm able to make choices and think for myself. And so I feel like I'm in some sense control, in control and so maybe God isn't in control in some way. And we, we seek to say, well, maybe God doesn't know. Maybe God doesn't have a plan. Maybe um, it's all up to me. Those two ditches. It's hard to reconcile. Um, very briefly before we move on, one of the ways in which I... I deal with this is simply to say, look, stop trying to reconcile it. There are certain things in life, certain truths in life that are mysterious. The Bible clearly teaches that God has a plan and is in control. We're going to look at that today. And it clearly teaches that we're going to be held accountable for the choices we make as well, that we have the possibility of acting well in the world. So how do we reconcile the two? The best analogy I've ever heard, because it's mine. I came up with it. It's really good. No, um, I, no I, yeah, it is. It's mine. Um, and is the analogy to light, to light. If you've ever taken a physics or a science class, you know that um, when scientists talk about light, there are two distinct ways they talk about it. They're unsure about what it actually is. 
Sometimes with certain equations and certain whatever, when you ask certain questions about light, you get the designation that light is a wave. But under other circumstances, asking other questions of light, light functions like a particle, like something is admitted from a light source and actually goes out and it hits your eyes. So which is it? Is light a wave or is light a particle? Well, it's the, the ultimate reality is something bigger than we can grasp and wrap our minds around, and the easiest way that scientists deal with it is just to say, we've got to hold these two ideas in tension. And that's what I submit to you is what we need to do with, with God's sovereignty. How does it work with our human agency? The Bible clearly teaches both. And understand it that there's just a little bit of tension that we're going to have to live with in order to acknowledge those truths. If, if both things are true, they don't, they're not irreconcilable. But ultimately, it's, we're going to have a hard time getting our mind around the ultimate reality, which is probably deeper and fuller than we can comprehend at this moment. But how does it apply to my life? What is the solution? How does this apply um, as a solution to my soul? How does this help? What reassurance can I get? The way this all came to me was when I realized after the birth of my fourth daughter. Yes, I have four daughters. Um, there's four of them. Four daughters. Um, and I'm one short of a girls' basketball team. And I was sitting in the hospital, and I was reminded of, I was shown a quote by a prominent American pastor, and it simply said this. It simply said, worry is not believing God will get it right. Bitterness is believing God got it wrong. And I realized that characterized my life. I realized that I spent most of my time worrying because I was afraid that God didn't have a plan or he didn't have the power to carry out that plan. That I better give God advice or I better be walking behind God like a nervous parent with a kid on a bike going, oh, he's going to fall at any moment. He's going to make me drop and I need to, make sure, I need to be there when he falls. That God isn't, is going to get this wrong and so I got to make sure he understands what's at stake. And there are other times when I look back on my life and I would um, become very regretful. I would look back and I would say, if only I hadn't done X, then maybe I would be where I thought I was going to be. You see, the truth of the matter is our lives aren't working out the way we thought. If you had gone 10 years ago and, and tried to forecast what, the, what these last 10 years have looked like, I doubt you could have guessed what the last 10 years of your life had been. All the joys, all the pains, all the frustrations, all the hopes, all the dreams, all the things that, you, that didn't work out, all the things that did. I'm guessing your life, like mine, isn't working out the way you thought it was going to. How do you cope with that? How do you cope with it? Some people like me default to worrying, default to um, sometimes bouts of bitterness or anxiety or depression, that it's all hopeless. Maybe you cope with it by being um, controlling. I'm going to make sure this comes out the way I want it to. Maybe you deal with it by being scheming and manipulative. Maybe you deal with it, if I can control all the variables, then maybe I can make sure the next 10 years come exactly the way I think it should. What we need is to be reminded that God is in control that God has a plan, and that God has the power to carry out that plan. Probably the best verse, the verse that I keep coming back to as the ground for, for this, the one that gives me the most hope when I think about these things is 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. 1 Peter, written by Jesus' disciple, uh, the apostle Peter, um, to a church that was struggling with persecution and things like that. And Peter just simply says this, 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I find in this passage at least three attributes of God that when you add it up together, it means that God is in control. I find that God is strong. He has a mighty hand. That God is wise. That he has a right time. And that God is loving. That he cares for you. And we're going to look at those today. First, God has a mighty hand. God is strong. God is at work even now to accomplish his purpose and work all things to their appointed end. So many times because we either don't see God or we wonder how God could allow the, the certain um, evils that we see in the world to, uh, to happen, we doubt this. One of my favorite passages to prove that this is nothing new comes from the book of Zephaniah. Uh-huh. When was the last time you had a Zephaniah reference in a sermon? No, uh, yeah, right here. Um, Zeph- how many of you could find Zephaniah in under a minute if I, let, if I, if I timed you? And people are like, I was in Bible drill. Yeah. Um, Zephaniah is in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. Minor doesn't mean it's, they're unimportant. Minor means they're short. And Zephaniah was written right around 600 B.C. Uh, to a world, to the, to the Israelites, who were in the process of rebelling against God, and they were about to be spanked pretty hard by God for their rebellion. And Zephaniah 1.12 said this, I, It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts, the Lord will, do, will not do good or evil. Did you catch that? Stagnant in spirit. People who are going, you know what? God's not up to something, so I better be up to something. Either it's up to me to accomplish good, or God's not looking, therefore I can do what I want. And I realized that most of the time, a constant truth that I acknowledged about myself was that I was growing stagnant in spirit. That I didn't really believe God was up to something because I didn't see it actively, or I wondered how it conflicted with with either what I wanted or with the evils in the world. God has a mighty hand, and he wants us to rise out of the stagnation that comes in our spirits. Um, One of my favorite favorite attributes, one of my favorite scriptures that reveals this is Psalm 127. Psalm 127, which simply says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. God is strong, which means if God wants something to happen, nothing will keep it from happening. Conversely, if God doesn't want something to happen, it will not happen. No matter how hard you try and scheme and manipulate and control, no matter how, how much you worry um, or get anxious, if something was intended to happen, it will. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say... Um, The Lord's building the house, so all you workers, just relax. It says, workers, you can work confidently knowing that if if God builds the house, it's going to get built, so work comfortably. Also, it says, you know what? If God intends that city to fall, no amount of watching and waiting and protection and defense will ever change that. God has a mighty hand. He is strong to carry out his purposes. One of my favorite examples of God trying to teach this to people comes in the book of Judges. It's in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, the people of Israel have come out of the land of, of 
they've come out of Egypt, they've gone through the Exodus and wandering in the wilderness, they've entered into the promised land and are now defeating all of the um, enemies that they find there. And one particular judge named Gideon, now a judge is a, is a military general, not like a Supreme Court judge wearing those fancy robes you saw me wearing earlier. Um, and God has a plan to use Gideon and his army to overthrow this group of people called the Midianites. And he brings them together and he says, you know what, I'm worried because I think your army is too big. He says this in Judges 7-2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful saying, my own power has delivered me. He's saying, your army is too big because if I sent you with this army, you might think that you did it. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take this army of 30,000 men and I'm going to whittle it down. First, he whittles it down to 10,000. And Gideon's going, oh, that's a third of my strength. Maybe I should. Let's stop there, God. That's good. We, we'd still fully acknowledge that you did it if you just let us have these 10,000 men. And God says, no, it's still too, still too few. And whittles it down to 300. A 30,000 member army whittled down to 300. And God goes, there you go. That's the size of army I want because with that size army, when you win this battle, there will not be any doubt that your strength or power or might or intelligence or planning or anything had anything to do with this. God has a mighty hand and he desires to rise us out of that stagnant spirit that we have that think he's not up to something. He desires us to acknowledge that and he desires us to realize it's by his power and not by ours that these things get accomplished. But God doesn't just have a mighty hand. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. The word there for proper time is a Greek word. Greeks have two words uh, for time. Um, one of them, chronos, which like chronology and things like that just means time. But they had another word, kairos. And the word kairos didn't mean just time. It meant the right time, the specific and intended time, the appropriate time for something to happen. Peter tells his audience, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the kairos, at the proper time, the, the appointed time, the appropriate time. See, God has a plan, and it's not your plan, it's not my plan, it's not even the plan that, that we think we're supposed to have. It's, it's what is according to his plan. Uh, uh, Paul says in the book of Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent Christ. The world was ready. The time was right. So many times we leave college or we leave our life and we have this, this roadmap either given to us by our society or by our parents or by our friends or by our own expectations of what a career trajectory and a life trajectory is supposed to look like. And we get anxious and angry when things deviate from that. It's like, okay, I'm going to graduate from high school, then I'm going to spend four years in college, then maybe two years in graduate school, and then I'm going to get this job, and then I'm going to go live in this place and make a certain amount of money, and, and my life is going to work out just wonderfully. And when obstacles start hitting our way, we think, well, it's not meeting my schedule. I didn't meet the right person at the right time. I didn't get the right job at the right time. I didn't get into the school I thought it would be. And I'm living in a place I never thought I wanted to live. God, why is this happening? And God is trying to, realize, trying to show us, it's not according to your time. It's according to my right time. One of the best examples of this, I think, is in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, you probably, graduation weekend was this week. Maybe you saw this on a poster or a mug or something like that. It's a very, very popular phrase around graduation time. For I know the plans that I have for you, declare the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, it's easy to pull that out of context, 
It's, it's important to realize Jeremiah 29 is an Old Testament passage written to people that God has just spanked pretty hard. Okay, God has sent his, he has destroyed the temple. He has allowed his people to be carried off into ag- exile into Babylon. And Jeremiah 29 is an extended letter from the prophet Jeremiah to the people in exile, basically saying, unpack your bags, you're going to be there a while. You are in exile and you're there because you're disobedient and it's, you're going to be there a while. And Jeremiah 29, 11 wraps it up saying, but don't worry because I know the plans I have for you and they're good plans. They're full of hope and future and not calamity. A couple of things about that passage. Notice it doesn't say, let me tell you the plans I have for you. So many times we want God to give us the the email document, right? In our inbox tomorrow, here is the strategy for the next 10 years. We're going to vision cast and we're going to, here are are our strategies to get to where we want to be in five or 10 years. God doesn't say, here is is the plan. He just says, I have a good plan for you. Trust me. See, the reason why is because if he showed us the plan, we'd be prompted to criticize and evaluate and, and offer suggestions to it right? We go, oh, okay, yeah, I like one, two, and three. Very good. I love where we end. Also great. Uh, four and five, eh, I can live with. Can we get somebody else? Maybe we can outsource four, okay? Maybe five, we could just maybe, we'll decide when we get there. Maybe not, maybe not. Um, we're going to play that one by ear. We would evaluate the plan or we would come to hope in the plan. God is trying to get us to realize that he is wise. And he desires us to trust him. And also, sometimes the plans are farther reaching and deeper and more complex than, than maybe we can handle. He's trying to say, I couldn't explain it to you now if I tried. But trust, not the plan, trust me, because it's a good plan. So, um, he is wise. One of my favorite verses, if you're around me long enough, I'll say it over and over and over again, is a doxology. It's a praise, a little bit of, in the book of Ephesians, um, the, uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and in the middle of the book, he just kind of stops and summarizes the end of a chapter with a, a praise to God that, that to me has sort of um, reminded me and, and has been a source of strength and encouragement my whole life. And it simply says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ, to all generations forever and ever. Notice how he describes God, the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think, not who has a little bit better ideas than you. He's got a little bit farther reaching plans than you. Sometimes we treat God as if he's a manager of just a few more people than just us. And like, okay, um, God has some nice ideas, but I got some good ideas too, and I really wish you would factor them in. No, your life and my life will be so much freer when we realize that the plans that we have for ourselves do not compare to what God has prepared for those who love him. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think and is asking us, encouraging us, pleading with us to lay down all our hopes, our dreams, our favorite wishes, our worst nightmares, our, our, our worst outcomes, and say, here, here it is, God. Make of it what you will. I trust that you were able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. God is strong. He has a mighty hand. God is wise. He has a plan. But there's a missing element to this, and if we don't add it, 
we're liable to develop a, a misunderstanding of who God is. See, one of the reasons why I had a hard time with God's sovereignty for a while, I kicked against it, was because I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the military, and he was a wonderful man of God and, and, and was a very loving father. But I saw around me what strength and knowledge by itself looked like. See, bullies are stronger. You know, I, I was surrounded by people who thought they were stronger than me and thought they were smarter than me. And guess what? If you think those two things, then you can just put somebody in their place and tell them to sit down and shut up. And I realized that I had adopted that mentality with God. That unbeknownst to me that I had this sort of punitive view of God where he was trying, he was, he was saying, look, Steve, just be quiet and sit down and just leave me alone. I got this. I'm strong and you're weak. I'm smart and you're dumb. Just sit there. You see, God's sovereignty is a bitter pill to swallow unless you also believe that God is good. And that's the third thing. God is strong. God is wise. God is loving. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. One of the things we forget is that God's overwhelming reason for acting in the universe is because he loves you. We, we, we learned it when we were kids, but John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The reason he chose to act was because he loved. And when we don't factor that in, we have this misunderstanding of not just God's sovereignty, but also his love. He desperately loves us. And not in the, in the weak or wishy-washy or naive sense that, that our world has. See, um, a lot of times we have this view of God's love that it's, it's like, like an uncle who's like, yeah, sure, I love my nephew, and uh, just go be happy in your own way. God's love is neither naive nor is it weak. God's love is radically realistic. See, some, so many times people say, well, maybe God has a plan, maybe God is strong, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know how I've wrecked my life. Yeah, I don't. But God does. God is the ultimate realist. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he is not unaware of who you are. One of my favorite examples of this comes from 1 John 4. 1 John is a little, a little manual for, for new believers about how to live their life. And 1 John says this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is just a big word, to, but that means, which means he paid your debt. Notice what this says. This says that God's love wasn't made manifest by him denying your sin. Sin? What sin? Oh, no, don't worry about it. It's not even, dis- and God's love doesn't dismiss your sin. Oh, it's no big deal. We can't bygones be bygones. God's love is this radical, realistic love who looks at you and looks at me to the depth of our soul and sees all the stuff we've done or wanted to do or intended to do and says, I fixed it. His love doesn't dismiss. His love doesn't deny. His love looks at you in who you really are and deals with it. God is love. His love also isn't weak. One of the verses in a, in a sermon on, on, on God's sovereignty, you'd, you'd expect Romans 8, 28. For, all, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. That he causes all things to work for good. 
What we don't know, what a lot of us don't realize is as we read the rest of this chapter, this whole chapter is trying to convince us that you haven't messed up your life. You haven't messed up God's plan. You are exactly where you need to be. And, you, and his love for you isn't this weak love. He goes on in chapter 8 to say, if God is for us, what could possibly be against us? And he lists, he says, you know what? Uh, your sin is not going to get in the way of God's plan. Your circumstances are not going to get in the way of God's plan. Spiritual opposition is not going to get in the way of God's plan. And he concludes Romans 8 with this statement. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor thing present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is trying to, re- trying to show us that he loves us, and that love is not blind, and that love is not weak. That he is a strong God, and his love is a strong love. And nothing we can do can overcome his purposes. Well, how do I respond then? What do I need to do to to ground this truth of who God is deep into my soul? Well, this passage, 1 Peter, gives us two things that he desires, that he thinks that his, his hearers need to do, and we should too. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. The first step to grounding this in your soul is humbling yourself. Humble just means to realize that you're low and, and not as big as you think you are. To realize that, that maybe you don't have it all figured out. To realize that you're small and that God is big. That, that, you're, that you're narrow and that God is broad. That your plans are finite and his are massive. That you have, that you have a, a frustrated little petty omnipotence and he is in control. Humble yourself. Submit to it. Submit to him. And it leads to the second part, casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. In in Proverbs, Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Realize that maybe you're not the smartest person on the planet. Maybe you're not the strongest person on the planet. Maybe you don't have it all figured out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And cast your cares upon him. Take all of this anxiety, take all of this scheming, take all of this frustration, take all of this control, take all of this manipulation, take all of it and give it to God. In Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, Paul tells the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all uncomprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Give your anxieties to God and wait for him. See if he doesn't show you that he has it by giving you that peace. See that he doesn't show you that he has your anxieties, um, your hopes, your fears, your frustrations, and isn't actually at work even now to cause them to work to their appointed end. One of my favorite and best examples of how this all plays out is in, is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And, and for those of you familiar with Genesis, the gen- story of Genesis ends with the, book of, with the story of Joseph. And Joseph starts out his life as a young teenager with these visions from God that says, Joseph, you are intended for greatness, and I have big things for you. 
And then what follows is a series of betrayals and misfortunes. His brothers are jealous and they hate him. And they plot to murder him. And then ultimately they, they succeed in selling him into slavery. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. And even in Egypt, he, he manages to cobble together a, a life there. And he ends up as a slave becoming head, of, head slave in a, in a house. And in the process gets accused of a horrendous crime unjustly and gets thrown into prison. And while in prison, he finally uh, meets people who maybe might be able to deliver him, and they forget about him. For two years, he rots in an Egyptian prison, and then finally, um, his, his life finds, out, finds a way to get to a specific point. He finds himself ahead of all of Egypt. He interprets a dream for Pharaoh, and all of a sudden, he's exactly where he needs to be. And then towards the end of the book, he meets his brothers. He comes face to face with the people who began the nightmare roller coaster ride of his life. And they're kind of freaked out. They're like, um, uh, don't hurt us, please. And Joseph says in Genesis 50, one of the most amazing statements of understanding God's sovereignty ever. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. See, Joseph understood that his life wasn't in his brother's hands. His life wasn't in his accuser's hands. His life wasn't in his jailer's hands. His life was in God's hands. And that even when those other people meant what they meant for evil, that God meant it for good. What do you feel like your life's in? Whose hands do you feel like your life is in? Do you feel like it's in your boss's hands? Do you feel like your life is in your banker's hands? Do you feel like your life is in your doctor's hands? Or maybe you feel like it's up to you and you don't know how to make your own life turn out the way you thought it should turn out. The point of this passage, the point of all of Scripture, is try to ground us in the radical, liberating, peaceful, restorative truth that your life isn't in their hands. Your life is in God's hands, and he is strong, he is wise, and he loves you. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the times when we so easily get distracted by the noise of our life, when we get so um, startled by all the bright, shiny objects and all the evils that go on in the world, and, it's, and we don't see how it could possibly work out for good, and so we begin to doubt you because we, don't see, we see the limits of our own, um, our own power. Thank you for the powerful reminder that you are a strong God, a wise God, and a loving God, that you are in control, that you have a plan, and that you have the power to carry out that plan. Grant us the strength and the soft hearts we need to humble ourselves, to submit to you, and to cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. Restore us, Father. Give us that peace of Christ which passes all understanding. Guard our hearts and our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.